the puck for Bourne. Rounds the net. Starts up quickly on the right wing side. Out to center ice. Look at this speed. Bourne across the line. Around her to Lady Shoots. He scores! In to win. Bobby Bourne did it all. Gillies out. Out of Bourne with Goring. Shot saved. Cheever screaming shot by Bourne. He has great talent. Skating. Shooting. Puck not cleared. Bounces in wide of Cheevers. O'Reilly fails to clear. Bourne shoots, scores! Bourne intercepted the clearing pass by O'Reilly, drilled it from 45 feet, and for the second night in a row, quickly, the Islanders win in overtime, 5-4. to four. Bob Bourne, the hero there. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities, allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell. So let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. Episode 67 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features New York Islanders Hall of Famer Bob Bourne, whose speed, skill, and versatility were key components in the Islanders' four Stanley Cup wins in the 1980s. In his 14-year NHL career, Bob scored 30 goals twice, 20 goals three times, was a member of Team Canada in 1984 and was awarded the Masterton Trophy for dedication to hockey in 1987. In this discussion, Bob reveals the inside story of his rise to the NHL and delivers great insights on legendary teammates such as Mike Bossy, Brian Trotche, Clark Gillies, John Tonelli, Dennis Potvin, and many more. As always, I thank you for helping us become the premier classic hockey podcast around the world. We greatly appreciate the kind reviews and awesome ratings you've left for us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Bob Bourne. Speed, skill, and character. That's how the New York Islanders described our next guest on his Hall of Fame plaque when he was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 2014. He's a four-time Stanley Cup champion. His number retired by the Saskatoon Blades, member of the Saskatchewan Sports Hall of Fame, and, of course, a Masterson Trophy winner in 1987 via the National Hockey League. So we're proud to have with us today Bob Bourne. Bob, thanks for being with us. No problems, Mark. Uh, I appreciate it. Bob, uh, living in Saskatchewan, was there were no teams anywhere near you geographically. So growing up, was the NHL something you had in your mind as a possible uh, goal of yours, or does that seem too far out of reach? It seemed too far out of reach, to be honest with you. Like, we were so far away, and I really didn't give it a second thought. Um I loved to play, and we were fortunate. My brother and I got to go into this little town of ours and skate every night for three or four hours. And uh, my dad was an avid hockey fan, and uh, of course, the first <laughs> the first game I ever saw was on black and white. But mm-hmm. uh, he immediately switched it over to color about a year later. So yeah, we uh, Saturday nights were uh, sacred uh, to our family, and uh, you know, you just I just kept playing and. I was just playing for fun. I heard you say somewhere along the line that you did have a figure skating influence early in your life. Uh, was that the case? It, it, it's true. Yeah, like we, we grew up about two miles away from this little town called Netherhill, just outside of Kindersley. And uh, yeah, I took figure skating for, I think it was around four years. Um just any time for me to get on the ice was a blessing for me. So, yeah, I went and did it. You know, you mentioned 
that, and I think of eventually how you were so well known for your incredible speed on the ice. And I, I think locally of a, a player named Robbie Fatork, who, uh, when I was growing up, was well known that when he was younger, he started out figure skating, and then, uh, of course, he became one of the better skaters in hockey as well. So uh, that was time well spent. But when did you start actually playing organized hockey? I did not have a game until I was 12 years old. Um, like where I went to school and where all my sports were, was, uh, but I, I didn't have an organized game until I was 12. Um, nervous as can be going in there and didn't know what to expect. But, uh, yeah, that's where things kind of got started. That's uh, that's amazing not to start till 12 years old. Usually the thing that drops off when you start playing organized hockey – Late is the skating, but that's something that you had already mastered. Uh, jumping ahead, uh, you end up uh, becoming a member of the Saskatoon Blades. And how did that process go? Were you scouted uh, by the Blades, and how did uh, that all come about? Well, it's kind of a weird story. I I was sitting at home one day, and we, you know. I think mom went in to get the mail and stuff and came out and there's an envelope there from the medicine Hat tigers. And in those days, all it said was you have been, uh, selected by the medicine Hat tigers and you've been, uh, they had lists in those days. They could mm-hmm. list. I right. think it was around, I don't know how many guys, but they had a list and I was on their list and training camp starts here. And, uh, uh so, I was a little disappointed because, uh, you know, Saskatoon was basically where everything was centered for our family. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, my we had a lot of family in there, and uh, and I'd been listening to the Blades on the radio for a couple of years, and and I just wanted to go to Saskatoon. So my dad says, well, you're not going to Medicine Hat. So <laughs> uh-huh. uh, we, we just worked it out. I went to the Blades camp, and Jackie McLeod um uh, Made, made a trade with uh, Jack Shoup, was the GM of Minnesota at the time, and he, he made a trade in, in training camp, and uh, away it went. What was it like? The the Western League, obviously, uh, was a league, uh, was was a tough league uh, to succeed. You did have to be tough. You're a young guy going in there your first year. You've got some interesting, high-profile teammates, guys like Pat Price, uh, at that point, uh, later would be Bernie Federko. Larry Saturuk was on your first team. So hopefully yeah. in, in practice, you stayed away from the net when he was shooting. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Ralph Klassen, guys like that. But what was it like for a young guy like yourself uh, jumping into junior hockey? Well, the funny thing was all, all I wanted to do was go to school. All I wanted to do was play for the University of Saskatchewan Huskies. And I wanted to go to school, and I wanted to get a uh, either going to be geology or architecture. Uh, so I applied for school, and I was taking five classes a day. Um, but I had a very good friend, Mr. David Lewis, who I grew up with in Kindersley, and uh, you know, Dave played a long time in the NHL, and mm-hmm. he uh, he's coached a long time. But um, one morning we were rooming together in Saskatoon, and he says, "Come on, get up." And he says, what for? And he says, we got training camp this morning. And I says, no, I'm going to school. <laughs> and he was a big, tough guy. He says, no, you're coming. You're coming. <laughs> so anyway, he talked me into it, and away he went. And, uh, you know, things just went day by day after that. And I, so I ended up just playing junior. And uh, But it was uh, it was intimidating for me. Um, you know, I was just this green farm kid. And... Um, didn't know what to expect, and uh, I enjoyed school. So anyway, but, but I I found out that you know I, I wasn't a bad player, you know, and I could kind of compete, mm-hmm. and uh, things just kept getting better and better, and um, you know I, I ended up having a, a pretty good rookie year. Oh, you sure did! And during that era, you would have played against a couple of individuals who would become very prominent in your life later. And we're speaking of uh, Clark Gillies of Regina Pats and Brian Trottier of the Swift Current Broncos. What are your recollections of being an opponent of those two at a young age? Well, the biggest thing for me was 
you know, Clark was a giant at, when he was <laughs> 17, and and I was six foot four, but I weighed about 140 pounds. So mm-hmm. Clark was a man when he was 17, and uh, it was scary playing against it. But the advantage that he and I had was uh, we both signed contracts with the Houston Astros and played baseball, and so we went down to. Uh, he was there a year ahead of me, but I went down to uh, Cocoa Beach in Florida to the Houston Astros um, training camp after our season was over. Mm-hmm. And then he and I ended up going to Covington, Virginia and playing on the same team. So I got to know Clarky very well. I mean, we hung out every day. I mean, you know, we had a lot of similarities. We were both from Saskatchewan, both playing hockey. So we just hung out every day. So playing against him the next two years was uh, was much easier. Mm-hmm. Um and then Brian was just Brian was just Brian. He uh, he was that way his whole career, kind of nondescript, mm-hmm. you know, not uh, not a Connor McDavid speed or anything like that. But Brian just got the job done, and he's I, I still say Brian Trotsky is in the top five of all hockey players I've ever loved. And you know, he was sneaky good, uh, strong as an ox. And so it was uh it was a real honor and that's one of the reasons why I ended up being with the Islanders was uh Brian was gonna be there and Clark was gonna be there and a lot of Saskatchewan guys. Uh no question, big Saskatchewan influence on that dynasty. But first I wanted to go yeah. back to it's pretty amazing from a, a regular uh relatively small area in Canada that both you and Clark Gillies had baseball opportunities. I was curious what position did you play, Bob? I was a first baseman. Clark, he was a catcher. So eventually you decided to uh, stick with the the hockey course. And in your draft year, you're selected by a new team, the Kansas City Scouts. And I was curious how you heard about that. Did you know anything about this expansion team when you had heard you had been drafted by them? Well, all I knew was that there was an expansion team coming in, and it was Kansas City. And I never gave it any thought. And I found out um, uh, my girlfriend at the time was a teller at a bank, and I walked in, and she says, I hear you're going to Kansas City. <laughs> and I said, what? Because <laughs> in those days, there was no there was no one went to the draft, and, uh, and no one had called me by this time, but apparently it was on the news and on the radio before I even got to see her, but that, that's what happened. She told me I was going, and I said, okay, well, it's not bad, you know, I might have a chance to play. <laughs> but uh, in the long run, it, it really worked out well. That's for sure. Now, you also were drafted by the WHA's Indianapolis Racers. Now, at that time, especially in your draft year, there's quite a bidding war going on. We talked about Pat Price. We talked about Dennis Sobchuk, uh, Ron Chipperfield, guys like that uh, going to the WHA. Had you had any discussions with the racers at all? We did for a little bit. Um, actually, quite a while that summer, we, we did. We went back and forth, and uh, I was negotiating with uh, Kansas City at the same time. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously, neither one of those worked out. And uh, I'll tell you what, Mark, here's what's happened. I'll get the story over with. Was Ed Schmelf was the president of the Western Canada Hockey League at the time. And mm-hmm. Ed grew up in my hometown of Kansas City. And so my dad and him were kind of friends. They, they were, you know, they knew each other and stuff. And so I went to see Ed in Saskatoon. There's a week before training camp. And uh, I told him the story. I said, I can't come to a deal with Indianapolis or Kansas City. He says, well, he says, where do you want to play? And I said, well, I want to play with the New York Islanders. And the reason being was Clark, Clark was going to get drafted. Trotsky got drafted. There was Lauren Henning. There was Gary Howard. There were a couple guys, uh, Bobby Mason was from Calgary. I, I knew a lot of those guys. Yeah. And I said, I want to play in New York. And he said, okay, what, uh, what kind of money do you want? So I told him, I said, this is what we're looking for. And he says, okay, go out in the lobby. He came out half an hour later, and the deal was done. The contract was signed, and I was off to New York. So wow. it, uh, he, he went and phoned Bill Torrey, and uh, they were buddies. And, yeah, and they got the deal done right there. Right, and your life, of course, would never be the same. You know, a lot of people. Yeah, I, I talked to, I talked to a lot of guys who played, for example, in Kansas City during that time period, and 
you know, the, sometimes fate intervenes in life and you end up with a, being a good player with a franchise that struggles and your career can go one way. Uh, you were going the other way. You were going to a team that was uh, on the rise with an absolutely, and this deal being another example of it, a genius uh, general manager and Bill Torrey. Yes, he was. Absolutely. Yeah. His his performance, I'm not telling you anything you don't know or our fans know, but his performance between 1972 and right through the 80s was uh, as good as anything that the game has ever seen. But you find yourself in training camp now in a National Hockey League training camp in 1974. What was that experience like, uh, being uh, now coming to camp with uh, pro players? Well, I was scared to death because here's why. The the summer before that, when Clark and I were uh, playing baseball in Virginia, the last day of the season in, in late August, I had slid into second base and I tore up my knee. Oh. So I had to come home, and this is my draft year in hockey. I was devastated. Anyway, uh, uh, I had an operation on my knee, uh, cleaned up all the cartilage and uh, stuff like that. I didn't skate till late January that year in my draft year. So, you know, it, it really hurt my draft position. But so when I, when I got to camp, you know, obviously, you know, Clark was the number one pick. I think he was number two overall. But, uh, you know, he was the golden boy. And, and uh, in those days in training camp, they put all the pros on the inside of the room and then all the prospects on the outside of the room. Mm-hmm. So I was... I was very nervous. Uh, my knee still wasn't perfect, but I had a really good training camp. And then it also in those days, I I would end up playing two exhibition games a day. I would play with the the minor league team, which was the Fort Worth Texans, and I would play with the Islanders. And I I think I played eighteen exhibition games that year. Wow! <laughs> so it was intimidating, but I, I, I played very well, and just had a great camp. And I, the, the day we were supposed to, everyone was going to New York, and uh, the minor league team was going off to Fort Worth. And uh, Mr. Arbor came up and he says, uh, "You're packing the wrong bag." And he says, "What do you mean?" Because I was throwing in this stuff in the Fort Worth Texas bag. Oh, <laughs> and he goes, "No." He says, "Putting that out in the back right there." He says, "You're coming to New York." So uh, I was really excited. And we played a couple more exhibition games in New York and then uh, started the season. And uh, I got off to a really good start. So that's kind of how it went. Bob, tell me about your first National Hockey League game, stepping out there in an Islander jersey. And uh, who was it against? And do you have any memories of that first game? <laughs> Every minute of it. Mm-hmm. I'm, playing, you know, I'm, I'm a kid and I'm watching the TV, uh, you know, watching the playoffs you know, in the spring with my dad and my brother. And, and so the very next, like a few months later, you know, and Montreal was in the finals that year. And so my very first game is in the forum in Montreal. And Al starts myself, Gary Howard, and Bobby Nelson as a forward line. And we are against Guy Lafleur, Jacques Lemaire, Steve Schott, uh, Guy Lapointe, and Larry Robinson. Well, there's and five, six Hall of Famers, not a bad way to start. Yeah, like you talk about being a little bit nervous, but we ended up losing the game three to one. But we played well. Our line played well. Um, I thought we were so brilliant. We we had such a great defensive system, and we kind of shut them down. But uh, it was amazing walking into the forum the first time. And you know, when you open the door, you can just smell hockey. Oh yeah, smell yeah. It was. Uh, it was, I was so excited, so tired because I was so nervous, but uh, we got through it, and uh, and I think we gained a lot of respect that night. Uh, no question. And the team now is just in its third year of existence. You end up getting into the playoffs very late in the season, maybe in the last game against the Rangers. And yeah. you, this is kind of uh, forgotten about in Islander history because everybody obviously fixates on the the dynasty years, the Stanley Cup. But the, one of the most remarkable seasons in Islander history was that year three, your rookie season. You go into the playoffs and shock everybody by beating the Rangers. And then 
a series I remember very well just because we had it on TV here in Boston all, all the way through because the Bruins had been eliminated by that point is mm-hmm. falling behind the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, by th- for three games and then coming back to win in seven. And, of course, almost doing the exact same thing in the third round against the Flyers. What are your memories of that 1975 playoff run? Well, certainly, uh, I think the biggest memory is after we went down three to nothing against Pittsburgh, um, at the start of practice one day, Alabama came out, and he said, uh, he said, I'm totally serious about this, and he says, I won't be hurt. And he said, if there's anybody on this ice, the Blues, we can't come back. He said, I want you to take your stuff off right now and go home. And he... He just explained it in a way that it just inspired you. So we end up going out there and we beat them in the fourth game in New York and go back and beat them again in their building and beat them in our building. And then we had to go for game seven in Pittsburgh. And uh, Eddie Russell won. I think the, the score was one nothing. But uh, and we were the second team ever to do that. And then, of course, we got to play Philly. And... Um, same thing kind of was silly. And we was like we had such a young team. We were like a little bit intimidating and played won the cup the year before or the two years before. Mm-hmm. So we were intimidated and we and we kinda let them walk all over us for the first couple of games and then um then we got more physical and and we won the next three and uh, <laughs> and then in game seven of course uh uh, there was a weird face-off right at the start of the game, and Gary Dornhofer was on his side of the red line, and he just took a soft shot towards the net, and the uh, Chico rest was in that, and, and Chico didn't see it, and went in, and the building went crazy, and uh, that was kind of it. They, they kind of took over. They beat us in 5-2, and they were probably the better team at the time. Right, but they were a great team at the time as you know went on to win the Stanley Cup so it was I remember watching that game seven and uh, mm-hmm. just it was just a, uh, a Cinderella story to be sure you did mention a player very familiar to our Boston audience which of course is number 18 Eddie Westfall yeah. uh, talk a little bit about Eddie uh, his leadership and his influence on yourself in that young Islander team well the good thing about Eddie was um we were so young, and, you know, he was tough on us. And that's the one thing I appreciate about what Eddie did was, uh, you know, it was no, you know, sugar and cookies. It was, <laughs> you know, he, he would he would, he would would embarrass you in front of everybody. But he did it the right way. Um, and, uh, Eddie just liked to play hockey. And, you know, that was his game, and... Uh, um, and he was so smooth and stuff and obviously he was at the end of his career but yeah I think it was just as uh, a tough approach to be in a team and and he he really loved Al and, and how everything was going and uh, yeah Eddie was a big influence in my career I don't know if I've ever told him that but uh, hmm. it was just it was, it was tough love you know from the team and, and I had so much respect for him because he played so long so I just, uh, you know, I, I just kind of followed his the things he was doing, and um, he was a good man. Uh, no question about that. The following season, Brian Trache arrives on the scene for the Islanders, and yeah. how, so you've got a lot of centers in the organization at that point. Uh, yourself, Lauren Henning, Andre Salara, and Ralph Stewart, Ralph Stewart and you find yourself along with Pat Price, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, for this uh, a large part of the 75-76 season. So you have a, a strong rookie season. You find yourself in the Central Hockey League in year two. What's your mental approach at that point? Uh, how did that all come about? And how did you kind of, I mean, you led the team in scoring, so uh, I guess your attitude going down here, just work yourself out of it and get back up to the NHL. Well, you know, I think I was just, uh, I think I was so embarrassed because I, I didn't, I had, a, I had a really good rookie year. And then I, I kind of, my family was building a cabin that year in northern Saskatchewan. And so I didn't work out a whole lot. And I'm not 
there's no excuses. I just didn't put enough into it because I thought there's going to be no problems coming back and we'll just get ready for the second year. And I had a lousy training camp. I came in about 10 pounds overweight. And, um, yeah, I just had a bad training camp. And, and Bill and Al sat me down and they says, look, we want you to go down there. You're going to be our captain. Um, and just, just go and work hard. And, you know, I went to the miners and I, I had so much fun. Like Fort Worth is such a beautiful town and we just had a great group of guys. And uh, yeah, I just, I put my nose to the grindstone and uh, just played hard. And then at the end of the season, I, I got called up a couple times that year and played a few games. But uh, anyway, at the end of the season, I went up and uh, we kind of had a long playoff run then too. I didn't get to play, but I was around the team a lot. And uh, and so that summer when I went home, I said, okay, this is this is going to end. I'm, I got the best shape of my life. I... I was just determined to make the team. Um, you know, and most people will say I certainly wasn't a fighter in junior. But by the third year of my NHL term, I I learned how to fight because Bobby Nystrom made me learn how to fight. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so I, I had to become more physical because I was a bigger guy. I put on a lot of weight, a lot of muscle. And I just uh, I just got more involved and uh, had a really good training camp, and uh, we just went from there. Well, you could tell on some of those you see them on YouTube some of your uh, highlights, if you'll uh, highlight clips of your fights. You've got a strong left hand going, and I <laughs> I, I noticed one fight you had with a guy who. Brad Maxwell, who went toe to toe with Stan Jonathan once in a a brutal match. I mean, a good fighter, and yeah. I mean, you got the edge on him, uh, landing those those left. So, I know, in, at that time of hockey, there was something that I think is a bit was something that's missing from the game right now, and it's uh, I guess you call it accountability. And on one of the clips, there's a, a a clip of a guy from Washington at the time, Lou Francisetti, who runs uh, an Islander player from behind. And there's like a pause, and you make your way over to him and let it be known that that's not going to be tolerated. Uh, I guess, would you agree in watching hockey now that's something that you maybe don't see as much as you did then? Well, I wish we still did because there has to be accountability. And uh, like I... I hate when I see some days in games where, you know, uh, even the little guys can get away with a lot of stuff. And I don't, and I'm not saying little or big, it doesn't really matter, but people are getting away with a lot more. Um, and I was taught, I was taught by three guys, Gary Howard, Bobby Nyson, and Clark Phillies. Good and teachers. <laughs> yep. And that's how to stick up for yourself. And, you know, hockey, sports is funny. In our life, I love him so much because, you know, if someone runs you over, gives you a stick in the head or something like that, he would always say, how long do you think he's going to play in this league? And I would say, like each one of us would say years and years. And, I, you know, I think I said the time, another 10 years. And he says, are you, are you going to get him back tonight? He says, why would you get him back tonight? He says, why not wait till next year or two years from now? He says, he's going to be playing two years from now. And that was our philosophy, and it always came to fruition. We never, like, you know, all these games, everyone says it's going to be this retribution the very next game. Well, it never happens, right? <laughs> but it does happen. It happens later, and mm -hmm. it's, it's going to happen sometime. And, uh, yeah, I, th I think all in all, I, those three guys taught me to, you know, to be patient and just to get ugly once in a while. Because I, I had a bit of a temper and I could put the switch. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, those days were really different. But I just, I just would like to see more accountability. And even, you know, uh, you saw the scrap of Cassian and Pachuk, right? Mm-hmm, right. I, I liked what he did. I liked it. And there was no penalty there. There was none. And Tachu kept blindsided him, you know, twice and within a minute. And uh, I don't blame Cassie. Um, I, I think I think there's got to be more accountability. 
Uh, that's very interesting. And speaking of, now, so, so during his time with the Islanders, 77, 78, 79, the team comes up a little bit short in the playoffs, has some good runs and some not, but the team remains patient and continues to build. I always give the Islanders credit for that because they didn't panic at any point to let you guys grow and mature. During that stretch, you, uh, as a hockey player, uh, reaching the 30-goal mark to 20-goal mark with regularity. So that's a time when you're establishing yourself, the team is establishing itself. Do you feel at that point confident that you're, as a team, on the cusp of becoming a Stanley Cup champion? Well, that's a really good question. Um, the, the the series that devastated us the most was against uh, Toronto, right, in the seven-game series when Lanny McDonald scored in overtime. I think that was 78. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. That, that devastated us. And, and, you know, as a kid, you're only 23, 24, and you're thinking, oh, you know, Bill's going to blow up the team. We're going to have a bunch of trades and stuff. Because I think we won first place in the league that year. The next year, I think we won first place again, and then the Rangers beat us. And that's that is just taboo. You you can't lose to the Rangers when you're playing in New York. So right. we thought the team would really be blown up after that series, and Bill just just hung in there with us, hung in and hung in. And the year we won, the first year in '80, uh, I I think we finished fifth. Like we didn't have a great year, but the key was. March 10th, the trading deadline, we got Butchie Goring. And we never lost another game in uh, in the regular season. I think we went 10 or we won. And, um, you know, things just started to turn around, and, and we were really confident. You know the greatest thing about being on a great team is you have a chance to win every night. And so many guys, like I, I look at these baseball teams and stuff, I mean, they're out of the standings by, you know, by June or July, you know, and, and in hockey, we always knew we had a chance to win. And it, it embarrassed us when we lost in a regular season game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that was, that's what made us stronger and stronger. Um, and then of course, you know, against your team in the playoffs in 1980, um, that, that totally turned our team around. That did, and that was uh, the end of an era for the Bruins because, yeah. well, first of all, obviously yeah. you, you scored an overtime goal in game two, uh, which yeah. gave you 2 nothing to start. But physically, uh, the you guys went toe-to-toe with the Boston Bruins coming out with a little bit of an advantage, but you were not being pushed around in the Boston Garden. I think of Gary Howard. I think of Knuckles Nystrom. I think of yeah. uh, Clark Gillies. And as a fan at the time, I'm, I'm looking at it and saying, wow. I mean, it was almost, you could just feel it as a fan that these guys are, are serious. They are not going to get pushed around. And you certainly had the talent as, as well. So that's, that was a real milestone series just for me as a fan, obviously, for you as a player. Yeah, it was uh, It's certainly the series that made our team for the next few years. Um you know, they had the, like, uh, I will always say this, they had the toughest team I've ever seen in the NHL. Oh, yeah. Um, and not even close to Philly. Like, they were tough. They had Wensick and Secord, and they had O'Reilly and Cashman and Jonathan. And uh, they just had the toughest guys. But we felt going into that series, we were a better team, like, you know, uh, skill wise. Mm-hmm. And. The brawl at the end of the first period in the second game is what changed the New York Islanders. And you know, you know, Dog Sutter led the way, and Clarky and uh, Bobby Knight had already been thrown out of the game. And but anyway, it was it was it was the ugliest brawl I've ever seen. And and we just came, you know, we luckily we were able to win the game, and we just came together after that because. Other teams saw that and said, "Okay, you can't you can't play with us skill wise. You can't play with us physically. So how do you beat this team?" Well, they couldn't. And then Billy Smith was just brilliant in goal. Um, and it, it, the most exciting thing was we we just knew we had a chance to win every game, and we knew during that era we had a chance to win the Stanley Cup every year. 
And and what a great feeling is that? Oh, absolutely. Not too many players have that. You know, if you I had this discussion with a, uh, a lot of players from that generation, very few teams were in that position, and you were. Uh, so, for example, yeah. the Canadians won the Cup four years in a row. You won it four years in a row. The Islanders, I think, won it. I mean, the Oilers won it another three. So when you're in that position, uh, being able to put it over the top was quite an accomplishment. Now for yourself, uh, one of the things you're best known for, Bob, is the fact that you took your game to an even higher level in the postseason. And in that four-year stretch of Stanley Cups, you averaged over a point a game and led the all-playoff scorers in scoring in 83. Was that something conscious? How did that develop that when the postseason came, you seemed to ramp it up where a lot of players uh, around the league will, you know, it's tougher checking, it's high intensity every night, maybe they'll, they'll take a step back. You took two steps ahead. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, it's funny because I, uh, people ask me that all the time, but it, it, it's a very simple answer. I probably got twice the ice time in the oh, playoffs right. I did during the regular season. And here's why. Like, Al was really good about playing four lines. Um, you know, obviously, Trotz and Boss got to play the, the most ice time. But in the playoffs, Al shortened the bench. And I used to play so much. And uh, going back to Eddie Westfall, is, is, is uh, I learned how to kill penalties from him and Lauren Henning. And mm-hmm. uh, so I was killing penalties. I was on the power play. I was on a regular shift. And my advantage was, Mark, that I grew up as a center iceman. Al switched me to left wing, and I played there for four or five years. And then if somebody got hurt on right wing, I, so I could play all three, or three forward positions, right? Mm-hmm. And even during that Boston series, uh, Mike Bossy missed the first four games. So I played right wing most of the time. And it wasn't natural for me, but I got so much ice time, and I, I really believe that had a lot to do with um, my point production. I got I got to play the power play an awful lot. Um, Al even put me on the point in the power play sometimes. I just I just played a lot more. And during the regular season, I was satisfied if we played the four lines and we won the game and um, and go from there. But I just played a lot more in the playoffs, and I was. And and you're right. I was probably way more intense. Um, I just, I just, and Clark Gillies is he's my best friend, and and he and I used to drive from the uh, from the hotel and, and, and to the rink together. Mm-hmm. And Clark, he'd just be wired all the time, like this <laughs> wired. And so I had to be wired, you know. Nice. So you know the the uh, intensity really grew in the playoffs and. Uh, once we got a taste of it, we we loved it, and it worked out good. That's for sure. Do we talk about intensity and skill? One player I wanted to ask you about is, of course, I consider to be the best defenseman that era, Dennis Potvin. Uh, talk a little bit about. I mean, I know it's obvious to the fans, but maybe something we don't know about Dennis that a teammate appreciated uh, what he brought to that overall dynasty. Well. For me, when I went on the ice and Dennis was there, like if I played left wing and he's a left defenseman, I wasn't worried about a thing. Like, and it gave me uh, it gave me the option to go harder uh, offensively. It gave me the option to forecheck and to just not worry. He was so smart. He was so strong. And the thing with Denny was. I would always hang up the ice a little bit if he's on a one-on-one or something. Mm-hmm. He would turn, He was the best passer I ever saw, ever. He he could lift the puck two inches over somebody's stick and land it on your stick. His passes were so easy to pick up. But he he just it just melted into it. He was he was brilliant that way and and just smart and and strong. I I just never ever worried. You, 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 know, you want to be a good plus minus guy, right? And mm-hmm. if Dennis is on the ice, I just never worried ever. And that, and that frees you up to do more things. Right. Well, I remember we, of course, growing up in the boss area, but we would get WOR on cable. So yeah. I had a chance to watch that entire 
Islander sequence of years between the 75 and the, the dynasty years. And I always felt that Dennis Bofan not only was smart, obviously talented, but boy, was he tough. He had a mean streak. And uh, when you combine that with all the the, the the tough players you had to team, all your tough guys could really play hockey. That was the thing. You didn't have any goons or anything like that in that era, which was yep. kind of predominant. But all you guys could really play. And so you had the, the, that in the toughness. The one element you did add in 1977, of course, was Mike Bossy. Kind of a pre-Butch Goring. He was kind of, a, I thought he was going to be the final piece. But talk a little bit about Mike, who's probably the greatest goal scorer of that generation. Well, it's a funny story about Mike. Um, you know, we had, you know, when you go to training camp, you always uh, stare at your first one draft twice. Mm-hmm. You always wonder if it, it, it can, can this guy help our team and stuff, right? And I saw Mike skate the first few days, and I'm thinking, this guy can't skate. Can't. <laughs> and, like, you know, he's from the Quebec League, and blah, 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 and he scores a bunch of goals and stuff. But in the first game of that season, um, we're playing Buffalo, a, a very good Buffalo team with, you know, Barrett and Pro and those guys, Martin and those guys. And, uh, and the game is 0-0 to about three minutes to go in the game. And uh, Trotch passes it back to Bossy right inside the blue line. And just that little snapshot he had, you know, it wasn't a slap, but just a snapshot. So I won nothing. Not not twenty seconds later, he scores another one too. We win the game to miss. I said, "Okay, this kid can play." <laughs> you know, like you know, Mike was uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant hockey player. Just brilliant, and and he loved to play. And the one thing I'll say about Mike Bossy, he played in all the tough games. Like he didn't disappear. Like if we went into Boston, he was always our best player. If we went into Philadelphia, he was always our best player. And that, and he would just get abused and abused and abused. But he he hung in there, and uh, it it meant a lot to the rest of us. Well, if Mike can do it, then we can all do. Because he got abused badly. Right. Well, you bring me to another question about you're a very durable player during this era. I very rarely yeah. miss games. But in order to do that, you've got to play hurt. And I suppose there there was some point during this stretch of time in your career where you probably had the opportunity to not play and chose to play, I'm making an assumption here, but talk a little bit about playing through injuries. Well, we had a, a really good uh, training uh, deal. Um, we had great doctors. But there were certainly a few times, like, uh, we talk about my fighting, you know, I broke my nose many times, and that tells you what kind of fighter I was, but, mm-hmm. you know, you just went in the dressing room, if you had something wrong, you just went back out. And there were some times where, obviously, you have knee problems or something, you just can't play, but, um, you know, there's, I got in a fight one night in the class, and I split my hand open for 10 stitches, and there's no way I should have played the other night or the next night, but I did. And they shouted all up and stuff. And I don't know what they do now. I, I think guys still get treatment and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But uh, you just expected to play. And, you know, you were hurting a lot. And I know my back being so sore sometimes where I could hardly skate. But uh, um, also, in those days, too, you were so afraid of losing your jobs, right? You know, there's a, there's a kid in the mirror that's ready to come up and play. And uh, you just you just wanted to play. And uh, and the doctors had less uh, input in those days. It was, it was basically came down to the coaching and how you felt. And right. can, you, can you go play? And I would just say to me, just can you play? And I would always say yes. So that, that's what happened. Bob, as the as your Islanders career winds down, and you're with the team for for several years, uh, obviously a heck of a career. But actually, before I talk to you about LA, I want to ask you about one more player, just because he recently joined you in the Hall of Fame with the Islanders. That's John Tonelli. So when you talk about Bill Torrey again, to be able to draft him, uh, he was in the World Hockey Association, of course, so he wasn't going to be with the team immediately. 
but able to have the foresight to draft him and talk a little bit about what he I, he was one of my favorite players uh talk a little <laughs> he was he was just all out and um talk a little i think you even played with him on the canada cup in 84 uh, yeah. yeah talk a little bit about uh about john well i'm going to get one day um Al Arbor came up to me. I think I think I had a meeting in his office. So we were just talking about general stuff and you know and what I should be doing and all this other stuff. And, uh, and he says, "Look at you know John Tamara's going." And I said, "Yeah, I hear that." And he's a left winger, and he said, "You are going to love him." And I said, "Well, that's great because if we got on the left side of Gillies, myself, and John Tamara, then we're we're decent on the left side, right?" And the thing with John was he was like a wolverine. Like he he almost fathomed at the ball. Like he, he, he was so <laughs> intense. <laughs> so intense. And he got to play with Bobby Nyson and the two of them just stayed on each other so hard. Like Bobby's probably the hardest worker I ever saw in my life. Uh-huh. So he would make Johnny work harder and harder and harder. And Johnny had a huge heart and then Johnny, what I was saying about my boss, he would play the tough in the tough buildings. And Johnny wasn't a fighter, neither was Mike, but they played tough, if you can figure that out, right? Mm-hmm. They still played tough. And Johnny, you know, I, I was talking to Dennis Poffin, no kidding, just two days ago. We were going over all the guys, and he said to me that if you took 16 of us one four Stanley Cups, and if he took one of those guys out, he said, would we have won four cups? And I don't think so. And I'm talking about Billy Carroll and guys like that who, uh, Anders Keller or Tommy Johnson. Mm-hmm. I don't think if he took one of those guys, would we have won the four? But I I, I, I always think of Johnny because in that uh, um and he scored the tying goal with about a minute to go, and he scored the winning goal. Oh, yeah. And so uh, he was a wonderful teammate. I sat beside him for probably seven or eight years, and he was just, <laughs> he got me more intense. You know, and that's what <laughs> teammates are supposed to be. Like, I I didn't have that intensity, but he, 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 the, the nervous tension sitting beside him just got me more. You know, like, <laughs> That's funny. John was a great addition to our team. Uh, when you joined the L.A. Kings eventually in 1986, what was the, you talk about the intensity and the, the tradition now that you've built uh, in New York. What was the culture like in contrast in L.A.? You know what, Mark, it wasn't that much different, and here's why. Because Pat Quinn was close when I got there. And mm-hmm. It was still very intense. Um, the players were obviously a little bit different. You know, if you don't understand the culture of winning, it's it's hard to get it, you know. And, and my first year in LA was unfortunate for all of us there because the Edmonton Oilers were unbelievable. The California were unbelievable. And the Winnipeg Jets with Bill Horacek were unbelievable. So we had to play those guys eight times a year. Mm-hmm. Well, we got killed most nights, you know, and then, uh, but Pat was unbelievable. But the funny thing is I, you know, I had one coach for 12 years with El Arbor and the next year I had four coaches in one year. Right. So, you know, it, it was hard to have any continuity. You know, we had Pat and then, uh, Pat got caught up in that thing with, uh, Vancouver and then we had, uh, Actually, Rogi Vashon came in, coached a couple of games, and, mm-hmm. and then Mike Murphy came over, and then the uh, name you mentioned, uh, Robbie Fatorik, finally came in. So uh, it was such a different culture, but but Pat was so brilliant, and Robbie Fatorik was brilliant, like just brilliant. And uh, mm-hmm. everything started to turn around for them at that time. Right. Uh Bob, at 87-88, your final season, it's kind of a few great things happen. You're on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Sports of the Year, for your work in the community with various charities, uh, along with other great athletes of that, that year. You win the Masterson trof- Masterton Trophy and National Hockey League. Had it, both of those had to mean an awful lot to you. 
Yeah, they did mean a lot. You know, like you know, the team that I played on, we were playing the five feature Hall of Famers and stuff. I mean, the, uh, the accolades get spread very far and thin. And, um, and, you know, so those, you know, individual awards were, were very nice. And uh, I appreciate them. I just had such a lousy year in my last year, and I'm still embarrassed by it. But, um, you know, I got a couple of awards, and I'm very proud of them. Um, and we raised a lot of money in Long Island for uh, for Spina Bifida. My son Jeffrey has Spina Bifida, so we mm-hmm. raised a ton of money in, and uh, yeah, I, I got rewarded. Uh, no question. And did you know at the end of that eighty-seven, eighty-eight campaign that uh, your career was over? Had you had to have the desire? You eventually went into coaching, but did you have the desire to play anymore, or what? Did you know that uh, you had uh, your career had run its course? Well, I just had such a horrible year, and um, you know, I, and, and my wife at the time, uh, you know, we live in Point of BC, and we we had a house here. My son Jeffrey was going through a whole bunch of surgeries that year, and you know, I just couldn't imagine living in LA and not being able to be here for him. So I packed it in. The funny thing is, I still had a year left in my contract, and. Uh, and they went and had that great year. Of course, Gretzky was there and Robinson and uh, Stephen and John Tomelli. It would have been fun to be there. But uh, I just decided, you know, um, family-wise, it was just better to, to come home and stay home. Well, Bob, uh, we really appreciate the time today. As I said earlier, been looking forward to talk to you uh, for quite some time. It was a great career. I was glad to be able to watch a lot of it on cable TV with Shakes McDonald, Tim Ryan, Ed Westfall, etc. But uh, yeah. it was good to, really good to talk to you and congratulations on a, a great career and hopefully we can get a chance to talk to you again soon. Anytime. You're Thanks, more Bob. than welcome. Take care. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. If you enjoy listening to the show, please consider subscribing rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. This helps make our podcast more visible and accessible to hockey fans around the world. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please contact me at ProHockeyAlumni.org or via social media at ProHockeyAlumni. The Pro Hockey Alumni greatly appreciates your support.